circumstances the way he does. He, you remember last time we were in Philippians, he said that to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I view everything through this lens. And so now he begins more directly to call the Philippians to the work and the attitude that they are to have as Christians in Philippi. And what he's about to tell them to do, he wants to happen, again in verse 27, whether I come and see you or am absent. And we know from the context that as he's considering whether he will be released from prison or whether he will be executed, that he's encompassing the possibilities of life or death. He's saying, whatever else happens, whether I come or not, whether I see you or not, whether I live or not, whatever is going on in your circumstances, only do this. Only what? Read it with me in verse 27. He says, Only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. The gospel message, the truth of the events of the gospel message are always of central importance. And Paul wants this to be the focus of their life together as a congregation. Do you see that? He says that he wants them to stand for the gospel, to strive for the gospel, to live worthy for the gospel. Paul told the church at Corinth that he delivered to them as of first importance, as of primary importance, that which I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That He was buried and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4. Just as Paul viewed all of what had happened to him in light of whether it furthered the Gospel, he wanted the Philippians and us to bring our whole lives, our whole selves, all of our priorities into conformity with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's really the idea behind the word that we have rendered in our version there, conduct. Look at 27, he says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ. It's a very comprehensive word. And other, other translations try to get at the comprehensive nature of this by using Entire phrases to translate it. Uh, Some say, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. But it's actually a single Greek verb that has the concept of citizenship at its core. To maintain the conduct befitting a free citizen. In other words, live in such a way as to bring glory and honor to your city your polis. Maintain the values and virtues of your culture, in other words. You'll remember that when we began our study of Philippians, we learned that, that Philippi was a Roman colony. It had Latin, actually, as its official language. It had Roman architecture and Roman laws and Roman customs. And some of the people in Philippi, and, and maybe even some of the members of the Philippian congregation, were Roman citizens, having all the rights and the privileges, the exemption from taxation and and things like that, that that entailed. So as a colony, the distant capital of Rome, with all its military, economic, and cultural influence, 
defined the identity of every citizen at Philippi. And so when Paul says, let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, he's opening this exhortation with a very politically loaded directive. He says, behave as befits free citizens. It's a concept the Philippians would have understood well. They were to live in such a way as to bring credit to the distant and majestic capital that defined their privileged status. Not Rome to the west, but heaven on high. He says, let your conduct, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. And in fact, Paul is even more explicit in the third chapter of Philippians where he tells them, for our citizenship, a word with the same root as our word conduct here, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for the Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. The city, the polis that Paul has in mind here is the heavenly Jerusalem and its charter, its values, its culture is the gospel message. He's telling the Philippians that they needed to remember that they were a colony, as it were. Not a colony of Rome in the Greek-speaking world, but a colony of heaven on earth. And we are in the same position that they were. The call of God in Christ has given us all also inestimable privileges and blessings. And it's our business, just like it was the Philippians, to live out that citizenship, that culture, to prove the reality of it by our speech and our attitudes and our actions. Just as Rome shaped the culture of its colony in Philippi, the gospel of Jesus is to shape our thoughts and actions and affections and priorities. We are, as he says here, to live worthy of the gospel. And it might be easy for us to read into that word worthy, some kind of works righteousness. That if you live, if you live worthily enough, then you will be granted citizenship in heaven. But that's not what Paul is saying here. There's no citizenship exam at the, at the heavenly gates. Just as John the Baptist told the people to bear fruit worthy or fitting of repentance, Paul says that our lives, our professions, our lives are to match our professions of faith, in other words. Don't forget the gospel message that was of primary importance to Paul, that the eternal Son of God came and took on flesh, and He died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again on the third day in accordance with with the Scriptures. That our salvation is all of free grace through faith. This is the message that was primary to Paul. We're not to live in a way as to ultimately make ourselves acceptable to God, but we are to live as those who have been brought to life from the dead through our union and faith with Jesus Christ. That's such an important point to emphasize here, especially as you're reading through the epistles, you'll find us in, in the back half of the epistles here in Philippians as Paul turns um, to give them exhortations, or especially in the second half of the epistles, there's lots of commands. And it's important not only to pay attention to what the scripture is telling us to do, but also the grounds and the reason for it. For example, in Romans chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, For the death that Christ died. He died to sin once for all. 
but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Jesus Christ our Lord. We're to put off sin. We're to reckon ourselves to be dead to sin, to not let sin reign in our mortal bodies, not because it's a bare command, but because we have been buried and raised with Christ. He says, Christ died to sin and he lives. You also reckon yourselves to be dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. In Colossians 3 verse 1 he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He says, Set your mind on heavenly things. Don't be earthly minded. But again, it's not a bare command. It's that you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Or in Ephesians 4.32, he says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. As we work out our life together as a congregation, we are to be tender-hearted, we are to be kind, overlook faults, bear with one another's sins. Why are we to do that? He says, not just because it's a bare command, but he says, remember God's mercy to you in Jesus Christ. This is the ground and the reason for all of the commands that we have in Scripture. We go wrong if we think only of the commands that are enjoined upon us without first deeply thinking about the foundation of grace that, we rest, that it rests upon. Or sometimes we might think only of the freedom and grace that we have in Christ and think that it has no purchase or no doesn't um, have any purchase in our life or call us to holy living. That also would be a mistake. But here Paul joins both of those halves with the concept of citizenship. He says you are all basically by virtue of the new birth, the, the spirit working in your heart, citizens of heaven, freeborn citizens of Christ's kingdom. And you are to live a life that befits that status. And so I want, I want to exhort you all to constantly, as you're reading the scriptures, meditate on the goodness of God to you in Christ, the mercy that he's given you in Christ. Look at Christ's death and resurrection. And as you do, let that be the motivation for your obedience to all the commands that God gives us. Let the gospel, in other words, shape the way that you think about acting toward one another in your family. Let the gospel think about the way, shape the way that you think about going about your job. Let, your, let the gospel shape the way that you think about interacting with one another here in the congregation. And as far as furthering the gospel, as far as having a witness for the gospel in our community, this consistent gospel-motivated life is the best thing by far that we can do in order to advance the gospel in our town and in our community. Um, when we lived in North Carolina, we had a neighbor knock on our door in the middle of the night. And she asked us, as we opened up the door, we let her into the living room, she asked us, um, what do I need to do in order to be forgiven for my sin by Jesus. 
I want to be done with my sin. I want to be done with the destruction that my sin is causing in my family and in my life. What do I need to do to be forgiven by Jesus? I've heard you talk about this before. And we were shocked because we had tried to talk with this neighbor about the things of the Lord before. We tried to bring up the Bible or our church or, you know, any, many different things. And she was always not interested. Everyone in her family was not interested, didn't want to hear about it. And yet that night, there she was asking what she needed to do in order to be forgiven. And she came to the Lord that evening there in our house. And, and knowing how uninterested she was in the past, a few weeks later, I asked her, I said, what, what changed? What, what caused you to begin to be interested or to begin to want to seek forgiveness for your sins? And she said, it was watching the people who came over for your small group Bible study. She said, week in and week out, as I saw the way your friends, the husbands treated their wives, as I saw the way the wives treated their husbands and, and the kids responded to their parents and the kindness that all of you had as you would have your parties and things outside with one another and to other members in the apartment complex. She said, I knew that these people had something different, that these people were different. Paul might say that they were citizens of a different country uh, from another planet. She said, I knew that I wanted what they had. Living a life that is worthy, that is consistent with the gospel message is one of the primary ways we as a congregation can have an impactful witness in our city because the world is watching to see if our lives match our professions. And what Paul is doing as he turns from his circumstances and the way that he had such a a desire to see the gospel go forward, as he turns to the Philippians and tells them how they are to begin acting, he says, this is of primary importance, that you live worthy, that you live in line with your citizenship in heaven, live worthy of the gospel. He also means that they are to be working for the gospel message's defense and furtherance. You can see that again in verse 27, where he says that he wants to hear of their affairs, that they stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He brings up the images of standing fast and striving. He switched from uh, political civilian analogies to military or athletic analogies. The Philippians are to stand fast. They are to be like soldiers, shoulder to shoulder, shield to shield, repelling or standing fast against the pressures that an ungodly culture can put on a congregation. And they are to be striving, an athletic analogy, Uh, like wrestling or running. They're to be striving to promote the gospel message in their community. But I want you to notice the great stress that Paul lays on them while they do this on unity. He hammers that point home with successive phrases. In one spirit, with one mind, striving together. Apparently, no steadfastness, no striving, no missionary endeavors 
would be worthy of the gospel in Paul's mind unless a loving unity was added. That unity in one spirit with its vitality and gladness and courage was to characterize the Philippians' labors in the gospel and ours also. A congregation that is committed to living out the implications of the gospel in its life among its members, defending it and promoting it, will have great unity because the hearts and minds of these people, of those people, of us, the Philippians as well, will be taken up with the grace of God for us in Christ. Living it out, promoting it, defending it, thinking of all the implications of it. And that means that all of our personal agendas and priorities and squabbles will get put on the back burner. will take secondary place, third tertiary place. When the gospel is central in a congregation like Paul is exhorting the Philippians to be, the unity will happen because we are rallied around the same objective, making much of Jesus Christ. Forces us to think, to question, evaluate our own hearts and our own lives, our own congregation. Is the grace of God in Christ, the gospel message, at its center? As we go about our lives, do we think of promoting the gospel, defending the gospel? Do we live out the commands that God gives us on the grounds of the grace for us in Christ? We should. Paul is not unaware, however, that living this way will be easy. If we put into practice what he exhorts us to in verse 27, it will put us out of step with a world that opposes Christ, but that will ultimately be brought under its rule. Look at verse 28. He says, And not in any way terrified by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition, but to you of salvation, and that from God. And so we don't know exactly what form the Philippians' opposition took. But Paul compares their sufferings with his own in verse 30. In verse 30, he says, Having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. So, something that they're experiencing is similar to what he endured in the church planting endeavor in Acts 16, and also what he's enduring in Rome. In Acts 16, Paul cast out a spirit of divination from a young slave girl, and the girl's owners retaliated for the loss of profits by accusing Paul and Silas of advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And when a mob gathered and the riot was looming, the magistrates ordered Paul and Silas beaten and imprisoned without trial. It is definitely conflict. The Philippians definitely saw conflict in the life of Paul. And something that they are experiencing is similar to what he went through. After Paul left, the Philippians' situation didn't improve much, it seems. So what were they to think about the attacks that were directed against them for the sake of the gospel? This was a very practical question for them. But as Paul tells Timothy later in 2 Timothy 3, that all who desire 
to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And although the opposition that we face in our lives is is comparatively minor, we're not under threat of beatings or jail, the fact remains that no matter how gracious our witness is, that we will all undergo some form of opposition because of the Lord that we serve. So the question remains, how are we to think about such things? How should we respond to them? It can be very easy in moments where you feel this kind of pressure to become angry or to become bitter or to become frightened and silent. But we're called, as it says in verse 28, to not be terrified in anything, which is a vivid image that Paul invokes of an army breaking breaking ranks and, and scattering from the field. So he's called them to great unity to stand together to advance the gospel. And he knows that they will undergo opposition. And so he calls them to continue to be unified and to not be terrified. Instead, we should recognize the opposition for what it is, a twofold sign. Look at verse 28. On the one hand, it is a mark of destruction for those who oppose the Lord, and not in any way terrified, he says, by your adversaries, which is to them a proof of perdition. Here we might think of something like the effect that Jesus' behavior had on Pilate as he stood trial. Even though Pilate was the one in the judgment seat, and Jesus was in the dock. Jesus's calm demeanor. He tells Pilate, you would have no power over me unless it was given to you from on high. It unnerved Pilate. Pilate understood that this was a different man, that there was some other power at work here. Or we might think of Paul and Silas's behavior in front of the Philippian jailer. Also in In Acts chapter 16, when Paul and Silas are thrown in jail, they respond by singing hymns and praying, and they're not afraid of the earthquake. It causes the jailer to ask them, what must I do to be saved? He's unnerved. It's it's a proof that God is at work in them and through them. When we face opposition with magnanimity and courage and cheerfulness, at calm and gracious demeanor, acts as a sign to those who oppose the gospel. And on the other hand, it is to be taken for us as a sign of salvation. We are to be encouraged. He says, but to you of salvation and that from God. When John Calvin commented on this verse, he said, this is therefore a choice consolation that when we are assailed and harassed by our enemies, We have evidence of our salvation, our ultimate salvation. For persecutions are in a manner seals of adoption to the children of God if they endure them with fortitude and patience. The opposition that might otherwise discourage us actually serves to assure us that we are truly Christ's. Just as Christ told the disciples in John 15, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. 
So I want us to think about when you look out in the world today, when you see the church or the gospel message opposed, perhaps in your own life, in our own community, or particularly and especially around the world, those who are suffering the kinds of persecution that Paul underwent, that the Philippians underwent. How do you view it? How do you respond? Do you get angry or shocked or discouraged? We shouldn't be. We shouldn't be discouraged. We shouldn't be angry. But rather, we should be encouraged by the opposition that we encounter, knowing that such opposition is a witness from God, both of His ultimate victory and of our salvation. In our flesh, it is natural for us to get angry or bitter or fearful. But by the workings of the Spirit, we can respond with calm assurance. This is a gift of the Spirit working in us, but will only happen if we allow Him to transform the way that we think about our sufferings. Look at verse 29. He says, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but also to suffer for His sake, having the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here is in me. This reassurance in 29 is, is truly amazing. He says, For it has been granted to you that you would suffer for the sake of Christ, or not only believe in Him, but also to suffer for the sake of Christ. That for, beginning in 29, shows that this twofold gift is Paul's meaning when he says that our salvation would be from God. He says, but to you, this opposition is a sign of salvation and from God. For, why? For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in Him, but to suffer for His sake. Out of all the many words that were available to Paul to pick for gifting or granting, he chooses one that is related to the word grace. We might say that Paul is, is even telling us that we have been graced on behalf of Christ, both to believe and suffer for his sake. This twofold gift. Many of us consider our faith as a gift and we understand that concept. Paul will later go on to confer, affirm that Christians no longer rely on their own righteousness but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith in chapter 3, verse 9. That our righteousness is given to us as a free gift by God in Jesus Christ. We understand. The Westminster Confession says that the principal acts of faith are accepting, receiving, and resting upon Christ alone for our justification, sanctification, and eternal life. We claim no credit for our faith. This salvation is through Christ. And as Paul even tells us in the book of Ephesians, that the faith that we have is a gift from God. Yet Paul's emphasis is not on this first aspect of God's gracious gift, but the second, that we might also suffer for his sake. And this is what I meant at the beginning of the sermon when I said his great concern for the Philippians and for us is that we bring all of our lives into conformity with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Remember that Paul told the Romans that we were predestined to be conformed to the image of God's Son. That's not a process that begins at the resurrection. It's a, it's a process that is completed at the resurrection, but is taking place in our lives right now. Jesus said that whoever would come after me, let him deny himself and daily take up his cross, the instrument of death, and follow me. God is in the process by the Spirit of stamping our lives into the shape of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, just like the way that a seal imprints itself upon wax. God will conform us to the image of Christ as he has promised, and the mold that he uses is this twofold gift of faith and suffering. We're not afraid and calm in the face of our adversaries because we view we are not afraid and calm in the face of our adversaries because we view their opposition the same way that we view our righteousness before God through our union with Christ. The Apostle Peter wrote, Beloved, do not think it strange the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. If you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You see, Peter had this same concept. He viewed the sufferings that he endured as an apostle through his union with Christ. And he wanted his readers to as well. It says, rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings. But he continues in verse 15 to say, But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a busybody in other people's matters. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. That's 1 Peter four twelve and following. So it is entirely possible for us to suffer for our bad conduct, or for, or for our sins, for our selfishness and self-indulgence. But what Peter is saying is that we ought to view our opposition to the gospel through our union with Christ, that we are suffering, that when we suffer because of the opposition to the gospel, Christ is suffering with us, and Christ is using this to mold us into his image to sanctify us, to grow us in our character, and to grow us in our faith. Paul likewise likewise viewed his manner of life and his righteousness and all of his sufferings as being conformed to Christ. Just as he says later in chapter 3, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Paul preached the lordship of the crucified and risen Messiah and his life as much as his message bore that imprint. And he wants the Philippians here to also bear that imprint. 
that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to be what they live in light of among their own community. It's to be the message that they promote out in the world. It's to be the message that they defend against corruption. And it is the message that their lives are supposed to take the shape of. We may think that Jesus endured pain and anguish so that our lives might be painless and easy, but Paul is saying the opposite here. He's saying that it's been granted to us not only to believe in Jesus, but to suffer for his sake. Jesus died and rose so that we would share in his death and resurrection, so that we would be granted his righteousness, but so too his afflictions. The head suffered so that the body and each and every member could participate in his sufferings, so that we might also, as Paul says, participate in his glory or share in his glory. Christ suffered once for all. Make no mistake, that death that Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead was sufficient to reconcile us to God for all time. Our sufferings in this life are not propitiatory. They're not gaining merit. But Christ's once and sufficient death and resurrection on the cross is imprinted into our lives. And as the power of Christ's singular death spreads, as we suffer and share in his afflictions, the message of the gospel and the kingdom of the gospel also goes forward. This gospel message, Paul says, is central. It's the only thing, he might say. Live together in light of it. Defend its purity. Promote it in your own community. And let the power of the Holy Spirit imprint its very shape into your congregation and into your life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to die for our place and for our sins and to rise from the dead. We thank you for the gospel message and we pray that you would teach us and that you would imprint that message into our lives as a people and individuals by your spirit. And in Jesus' name, amen.